Chapter thirty six, part one of The Doctor's Wife by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsten Weber. Chapter thirty six, part one. Between two worlds. A solemn calm came down upon the house at Greybridge, and for the first time Isabel Gilbert felt the presence of death about and around her shutting out all the living world by its freezing influence. The great iceberg had come down upon the poor, frail bark. It almost seemed to Isabel as if she and all in that quiet habitation had been encompassed by a frozen wall through which the living could not penetrate. She suffered very much. The morbid sensibility of her nature made her especially liable to such suffering, a dull, remorseful pain gnawed at her heart. Ah, how wicked she had been! How false, how cruel, how ungrateful! But if she had known that he was to die, if she had only known, it might all have been different. The foreknowledge of his doom would have ensured her truth and tenderness. She could not have wronged, even by so much as a thought, a husband whose days were numbered and amid all her remorse she was forever laboring with the one grand difficulty, the difficulty of realizing what had happened. She had needed the doctor's solemn assurance that her husband was really dead, before she could bring herself to believe that the white swoon, the chill heaviness of the passive hand, did indeed mean death. And even when she had been told that all was over, the words seemed to have very little influence upon her mind. It could not be. All the last fortnight of anxiety and trouble was blotted out, and she could only think of George Gilbert as she had always known him until that time, in the full vigor of health and strength. She was very sorrowful, but no passionate grief stirred her frozen breast. It was the shock, the sense of horror, that oppressed her, rather than any consciousness of a great loss. She would have called her husband back to life, but chiefly because it was so horrible to her to know that he was there, near her, what he was. Once the thought came to her, the weak, selfish thought, that it would have been much easier for her to bear this calamity if her husband had gone away, far away from her, and only a letter had come to tell her that he was dead. She fancied herself receiving the letter, and wondering at its black-edged border. The shock would have been very dreadful, but not so horrible, as the knowledge that George Gilbert was in that house, and yet there was no George Gilbert. Again and again her mind went over the same beaten track. Again and again the full realization of what had happened slipped away from her, and she found herself framing little speeches, penitent, remorseful speeches expressive of her contrition for all past shortcomings. And then there suddenly flashed back upon her the too vivid picture of that deathbed scene, and she heard the dull, thick voice murmuring feebly words of love and praise. In all this time Roland Lansdell's image was shut out of her mind. In the dense and terrible shadow that filled all the chambers of her brain, that bright and splendid figure could have no place. She thought of Mr. Colborne at Hurstonleigh now and then, and felt a vague yearning for his presence. He might have been able to comfort her, perhaps, somehow, 
he might have made it easier for her to bear the knowledge of that dreadful presence in the room upstairs. She tried once or twice to read some of the chapters that had seemed so beautiful on the lips of the popular curate, but even out of that holy volume dark and ghastly images arose to terrify her, and she saw Lazarus emerging from the tomb, livid in his grave clothes, and death and horror seemed to be everywhere and in everything. After the first burst of passionate grief bitterly intermingled with indignation against the woman whom she believed to have been a wicked and neglectful wife, Matilda Jeffson was not ungentle to the terror-stricken girl so newly made a widow. She took a cup of scalding tea into the darkened parlour where Isabel sat, shivering every now and then, as if with cold, and persuaded the poor frightened creature to take a little of that comforting beverage. She wiped away her own tears with her apron while she talked to Isabel of patience and resignation, submission to the will of Providence, and all those comforting theories which are very sweet to the faithful mourner, even when the night-time of affliction is darkest. But Isabel was not a religious woman. She was a child again, weak and frivolous, frightened by the awful visitant who had so newly entered the house. All through the evening of her husband's death she sat in the little parlour, sometimes trying to read a little, sometimes idly staring at the tall wick of the tallow candle, which was only snuffed once in a way when Mrs. Jeffson came into the room, to keep the scared creature company for a bit, she said to her husband, who sat by the kitchen fire with his elbows on his knees and his face hidden in his hands, brooding over those bygone days when he had been wont to fetch his master's son from that commercial academy in the Wareham Road. There was a good deal of going in and out, a perpetual tramp of hushed footsteps moving to and fro, as it seemed to Isabel, and Mrs. Jeffson, even in the midst of her grief, appeared full of some kind of business that kept her astir all the evening. The doctor's wife had imagined that all voice and motion must come to an end, that life itself must make a pause in a house where death was. Others might feel a far keener grief for the man that was gone, but no one felt so deep an awe of death as she did. Mrs. Jeffson brought her some supper on a little tray late in the evening, but she pushed it away from her and burst into tears. There seemed a kind of sacrilege in this carrying in and out of food and drink while he lay upstairs, he whose hat still hung in the passage without, whose papers and ink-bottles and medical books were all primly arranged on one of the little vulgar cupboards by the fireplace. Ah, how often she had hated those medical books for being what they were, instead of editions of Zanoni and Ernest Maltravers and it seemed wicked even to have thought unkindly of them, now that he to whom they belonged was dead. It was quite in vain that Mrs. Jeffson urged her to go upstairs to the room opposite that in which the surgeon lay. It was quite as vainly that the good woman entreated her to go and look at him, now that he was lying so peacefully in the newly arranged chamber, to lay her hand on his marble forehead, so that no shadow of him should trouble her in her sleep. The girl only shook her head forlornly. "'I'm afraid,' she said piteously. "'I'm afraid of that room. I never thought that he would die. 
I know that I wasn't good. It was wicked to think of other people always and not of him. But I never thought that he would die. I knew that he was good to me, and I tried to obey him, but I think I should have been different if I had known that he would die. She pulled out the little table drawer, where the worsted socks were rolled up in fluffy balls, with needles sticking out of them here and there. Even these were a kind of evidence of her neglect. She had cobbled them a little during the later period of her married life, during the time of her endeavor to be good, but she had not finished this work, or any other. Ah, what a poor creature she was, after all! A creature of feeble resolutions, formed only to be broken. A weak, vacillating creature, full of misty yearnings and aspirings, resolving nobly in one moment to yield sinfully in the next. She begged to be allowed to spend the night downstairs, on the rickety little sofa, and Mrs. Jeffson, seeing that she was really oppressed by some childish terror of that upper story, brought her some blankets and pillows, and a feeble little light that was to burn until daybreak. So, in that familiar room whose every scrap of shabby furniture had been a part of the monotony of her life, Isabel Gilbert spent the first night of her widowhood, lying on the little sofa, nervously conscious of every sound in the house, feverishly wakeful until long after the morning sun was shining through the yellow-white blind, when she fell into an uneasy doze, in which she dreamt that her husband was alive and well. She did not arouse herself out of this, and yet she was never thoroughly asleep throughout the time, until after ten o'clock and then she found Mrs. Jeffson sitting near the little table, on which the inevitable cup of tea was smoking beside a plate of the clumsy kind of bread and butter, inseparably identified with George Gilbert, in Isabel's mind. "'There's somebody wants to see you, if you're well enough to be spoken to, my dear,' Matilda said very gently, for she had been considerably moved by Mrs. Gilbert's penitent little confession of her shortcomings as a wife and was inclined to think that perhaps, after all, Graybridge had judged this helpless schoolgirl creature rather harshly. "'Take the tea, my dear. I made it strong on purpose for you, and try to cheer up a bit, poor lassie. You're young to wear widow's weeds, but he was fit to go. If all of us had worked as hard for the good of other folks, we could afford to die as peaceful as he did.' Isabel pushed the heavy tangled hair away from her pallid face, and pursed up her pale lips to kiss the Yorkshire woman. "'You're very kind to me,' she said. "'You used to think that I was wicked, I know, and then you seemed very unkind. But I always wished to be good. I should like to have been good, and to die young, like George's mother.' It is to be observed that, with Isabel's ideal of goodness, there was always the association of early death. She had a vague idea that very religious and self-denying people got through their quota of piety with tolerable speed, and received their appointed reward. And yet her notions of self-sacrifice were very limited, and she could scarcely have conceived a long career of perfection. She thought of nuns as creatures who bade farewell to the world, and had all their back hair cut off, and retired into a convent, and died soon afterwards— while they were still young and interesting. She could not have imagined an elderly nun with a long, monotonous life of self-abnegation behind her. 
getting up at four o'clock every morning, and being as bright and vivacious and cheerful as any happy wife or mother outside the convent walls. Yet there are such people. Mrs. Gilbert took a little hot tea, and then sat quite still, with her head lying on Matilda Jeffson's shoulder, and her hand clasped in Matilda's rough fingers. That living clasp seemed to impart a kind of comfort, so terribly had death entered into Isabel's narrow world. "'Do you think you shall be well enough to see him presently, poor lassie?' Mrs. Jeffson said, after a long silence. "'I shouldn't ask you, only he seems anxious-like, as if there was something particular on his mind, and I know he's been very kind to you.' Isabel stared at her in bewilderment. "'I don't know who you are talking of,' she said. "'It's Mr. Raymond from Conventford. It's early for him to be so far as Greybridge, but he looks as pale and worn-like as if he's been up about all nights. He was all struck of a heap when I told him about our poor master.' Here Mrs. Jeffson had recourse to the cotton apron, which had been so frequently applied to her eyes during the last week. Isabel huddled a shabby little shawl about her shoulders. She had made no change in her dress when she had lain down the night before, and she was very pale and wan and tumbled and woe-begone in the bright summer light. "'Mr. Raymond! Mr. Raymond!' she repeated his name to herself once or twice, and made a faint effort to understand why he should have come to her. He had always been very kind to her, and associated with his image there was a sense of sound wisdom and vigorous cheerfulness of spirit. His presence would bring some comfort to her, she thought. Next to Mr. Colborne he was the person whom she would most have desired to see. "'I will go see him, Mrs. Jeffson,' she said, rising slowly from the sofa. "'He was always very good to me.' "'But, oh, how the sight of him will bring back the time at Convertford, "'when George used to come and see me on Sunday afternoons, "'and we used to walk together in the cold, bare meadows.' "'That time did come back to her as she spoke, "'a grey, colourless pause in her life, "'in which she had been not happy, perhaps, but contented. "'And since that time, what tropical splendours, what a gorgeous oasis of light and colour had spread itself suddenly about her path, a forest of miraculous flowers and enchanted foliage that had shut out all the everyday world in which other people dragged out their tiresome existences, a wonderful Asiatic wilderness in which there were hiding dangers lurking, terrible as the cobras that dropped down upon travellers, from some flowering palm-tree, or the brindled tigers that prowl in the shadowy jungle. She looked back across that glimpse of an earthly paradise to the old dull days at Conventford, and a hot blast from the topical oasis seemed to rush in about her, beyond which the past spread far away like a cool grey sea. Perhaps that quiet, neutral-tinted life was the best after all, she saw herself again as she had been, engaged to the man who lay dead upstairs, and weaving a poor little web of romance for herself, even out of that prosaic situation. Mr. Raymond was waiting in the best parlour, that sacred chamber which had been so rarely used during the parish surgeon's brief wedded life, that primly arranged little sitting-room, 
which always had a faint odor of old-fashioned potpourri, the room which Isabel had once yearned to beautify into a bower of chintz and muslin. The blind was down, and the shutters half-closed, and in the dim light Charles Raymond looked very pale. "'My dear Mrs. Gilbert,' he said, taking her hand and leading her to a seat, "'my poor child, so little more than a child, so little wiser or stronger than a child. It seems cruel to come to you at such a time, but life is very hard sometimes.' "'It was very kind of you to come,' Isabel exclaimed, interrupting him. "'I wanted to see you, or someone like you. For everything seemed so dreadful to me. I never thought that he would die.' She began to cry, in a weary, helpless way, not like a person moved by some bitter grief, rather like a child that finds itself in a strange place and is frightened. "'My poor child, my poor child!' Charles Raymond still held Isabel's passive hand, and she felt tears dropping on it, the tears of a man, of all others the last to give way to any sentimental weakness. But even then she did not divine that he must have some grief of his own, some sorrow that touched him more nearly than George Gilbert's death could possibly touch him. Her state of feeling just now was a peculiarly selfish state, perhaps, for she could neither understand nor imagine anything outside that darkened house where death was supreme. The shock had been too terrible and too recent. It was as if an earthquake had taken place, and all the atmosphere round her was thick with clouds of blinding dust produced by the concussion. She felt Mr. Raymond's tears dropping slowly on her hand, and if she thought about them at all, she thought them only evidence of his sympathy with her childish fears and sorrows. "'I loved him like my own son,' murmured Charles Raymond, in a low, tender voice. "'If he had not been what he was, if he had been the veriest cub that ever disgraced a good old stock, I think even then I should have loved him as dearly and as truly for her sake, her only son.' I've seen him look at me, as she looked, when I kissed her in the church on her wedding day. So long as he lived, I should have never felt that she was really lost to me. Isabel heard nothing of these broken sentences. Mr. Raymond uttered them in low, musing tones that were not intended to reach any mortal ears. For some little time he sat silently by the girl's side, with her hand lying still in his, then he rose and walked up and down the room with a soft, slow step, and with his head drooping. "'You have been very much shocked by your husband's death,' he said at last. Isabel began to cry again at this question, weak, hysterical tears that meant very little, perhaps. "'Oh, very, very much,' she answered. "'I know I was not so good as I ought to have been.' and I can never ask him to forgive me now. You were very fond of him, I suppose. A faint blush flickered and faded upon Isabel's pallid face, and then she answered, hesitating a little, He was very good to me, and I, I tried always to be grateful, almost always, she added with a remorseful recollection of rebellious moments in which she had hated her husband, because he ate spring onions and wore Greybridge-made boots. Just the slightest indication of a smile glimmered upon Mr. Raymond's countenance as he watched Isabel's embarrassment, 
We are such weak and unstable creatures, at the very best, that it is just possible this man, who loved Roland Lansdell very dearly, was not entirely grieved by the discovery of Isabel's indifference for her dead husband. He went back to the chair near hers, and seated himself once more by her side. He began to speak to her in a very low, earnest voice, but he kept his eyes bent upon the ground, and in that dusky light she was quite unable to see the expression on his face. "'Isabel,' he began very gravely, "'I said just now that life seems very hard to us sometimes, not to be explained by any doctrine of averages, by any of the codes of philosophy which man frames for his own comfort.' only to be understood very dimly by one sublime theory which some of us are not strong enough to grasp and hold by. Ah, what poor tempest-tossed vessels we are without that compass! I have had a great and bitter grief to bear within the last four-and-twenty hours, Isabel, a sorrow that has come upon me more suddenly than even the shock of your husband's death can have fallen on you. I am very sorry for you, "'Isabel answered dreamily. "'The world must be full of trouble, I think. "'It doesn't seem as if any one was ever really happy.' "'She was thinking of her own life, so long to look back upon, "'though she was little more than twenty years of age. "'She was thinking of the petty, sordid miseries of her girlhood, "'the sheriff's officers and tax-gatherers and infuriated tradespeople, "'the great shock of her father's disgrace.' the dull monotony of her married life, and Roland Lansdell's sudden departure, and his stubborn anger against her when she refused to run away with him, and then her husband's death. It seemed all one dreary record of grief and trouble. "'I am growing old, Isabel,' resumed Mr. Raymond, "'but I have never lost my sympathy with youth and all its brightness.' I think, perhaps, that sympathy has grown wider and stronger with increase of years. There is one young man who has been always very dear to me, more dear to me than I can ever make you comprehend, unless I were to tell you the subtle link that has bound him to me. I suppose there are some fathers who have as deep a love for their sons as I have for the man of whom I speak— but I have always fancied fatherly love a very lukewarm feeling compared to my affection for Roland Lansdell. Roland Lansdell! It was the first time she had heard his name spoken since that Sunday on which her husband's illness had begun. The name shot through her heart with a thrill that was nearly akin to a pain. A little glimpse of lurid sunshine burst suddenly in upon the darkness of her life, she clasped her hands before her face, almost as if it had been actual light that she wanted to shut out. "'Oh, don't speak of him,' she said piteously. "'I was so wicked. I thought of him so much, but I did not know that my husband would die. Please don't speak of him. It pains me so to hear his name.' She broke down into a torrent of hysterical weeping as she uttered this last entreaty. She remembered Roland's angry face in the church, his studied courtesy during that midnight interview at the priory, that calm reserve of manner which she had mistaken for indifference. He was nothing to her, he was not even her friend, and she had sinned so deeply against the dead man for his sake. 
"'I should be the last to mention Roland Lansdell's name in your hearing,' Mr. Raymond answered presently, when she had grown a little quieter. "'If the events of the last day or two had not broken down all barriers. "'The time is very near at hand, Isabel, when no name ever spoken upon this earth will be an emptier sound than the name of Roland Lansdell.' She lifted her tear-stained face suddenly and looked at him. All the clouds floated away, and a dreadful light broke in upon her. She looked at him, trembling from head to foot, with her hands clasped convulsively about his arm. "'You came here to tell me something,' she gasped. "'Something has happened to him. Ah, if it has, life is all sorrow.' "'He is dying, Isabel.' "'Dying!' Her lips shaped the words, and her fixed eyes stared at Charles Raymond's face with an awful look. "'He is dying. It would be foolish to deceive you with any false hope, when in four-and-twenty hours' time all will be finished. He went out riding the other night, and fell from his horse, as it is supposed. He was found by some haymakers early next morning, lying helpless some miles from the priory, and was carried home.' The medical men give no hope of his recovery, but he has been sensible at intervals ever since. I have been a great deal with him, constantly with him, and his cousin Gwendolen is there. He wants to see you, Isabel. Of course he knows nothing of your husband's death. I did not know of it myself till I came here this morning. He wants to see you, my poor child. Do you think you can come?' She rose, and bent her head slowly, as if in assent, but the fixed look of horror never left her face. She moved towards the door, and seemed as if she wanted to go at once, dressed as she was, with the old faded shawl wrapped about her. "'You'd better get your housekeeper to make you comfortable and tidy while I go and engage a fly,' said Mr. Raymond, and then, looking her full in the face, he added, "'Can you promise me to be very calm and quiet when you see him? "'You had better not come unless you can promise me as much as that. "'His hours are numbered as it is, but any violent emotion would be immediately fatal. "'A man's last hours are very precious to him, remember. "'The hours of a man who knows his end is near make a sacred mystical period "'in which the world drops far away from him.' and he is in a kind of middle region between this life and the next. I want you to recollect this, Isabel. The man you are going to see is not the man you have known in the past. There would be very little hope for us after death if we found no hallowing influence in its approach. I will recollect, Isabel answered. She had shed no tears since she had been told of Roland's danger. Perhaps this new and most terrible shock had nerved her with an unnatural strength, and amid all the anguish comprehended in the thought of his death, it scarcely seemed strange to hear that Roland Lansdell should be dying. It seemed rather as if the end of the world had suddenly come about, and it mattered very little who should be the first to perish. Her own turn would come very soon, no doubt." Mr. Raymond met Mrs. Jeffson in the passage, and said a few words to her before he went out of the house. The good woman was shocked at the tidings of Mr. Lansdell's accident. She had thought very badly of the elegant young master of Mordred Priory, 
but death and sorrow take the bitterness out of a true-hearted woman's feelings, and Matilda was womanly enough to forgive Roland for the wish that summoned the doctor's wife to his deathbed. She went upstairs, and came down with Isabel's bonnet and cloak, and simple toilet paraphernalia, and presently Mrs. Gilbert had a consciousness of cold water splashed upon her face, and a brush passed over her tangled hair. She felt only half conscious of these things, as she might have felt had they been the events of a dream. So presently, when Mr. Raymond came back, accompanied by the muffled rolling of wheels in the straw-bestrewn lane, and she was half-lifted into the old-fashioned, mouldy-smelling Greybridge fly, so, all along the familiar high-road, past the old inn with the sloping roof, where the pigeons were cooing to each other, as if there had been no such thing as death or sorrow in the world. So, under the grand Gothic gates of monastic Mordred, it was all like a dream, a terrible, oppressive dream, hideous by reason of some vague sense of horror, rather than by the actual vision presented to the eyes of the sleeper. In a troubled dream it is always thus. It is always a hidden, intangible something that oppresses the dreamer. The leaves were fluttering in the warm midsummer wind, and the bees were humming about the great flower-beds. Far away the noise of the waterfall blended with all other summer sounds in a sweet confusion. And he was dying. Oh, what wonderful patches of shadow and sunlight on the white lawns! What marvellous glimpses down long glades, where the young fern heaved to and fro, in the fitful breezes, like the emerald wavelets of a summer sea. And he was dying. It is such an odd old feeling, this unwillingness to comprehend that there can be death anywhere upon an earth that is so beautiful. Eve may have felt very much as Isabel felt to-day, when she saw a tropical sky, serenely splendid above the corpse of murdered Abel. Hero may have found the purple distances of the classic mountains, the yellow glory of the sunlit sands, almost more difficult to bear than the loss of her drowned lover. End of chapter 36, part 1 Recording by Kirsten Weber.